This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. For the benefit of our guests, we are in a series in 1 Peter. This is typically what we do as a church. We pick one book of the Bible and make our way through it systematically. Uh, you can find the book of 1 Peter by looking at the table of contents in the front of the Bible and then turning all the way back there. If you do not have a Bible with you, we'd love to give you one today. And so we actually have Bibles out on the table. Uh, please feel free to take one on us. And as you make your way to 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 4 through 10 today. Um, to get us ready to read our text this morning, I, I want to ask you to think about this question. Um, I'm not sure what you're into, but think about whatever it is that you're into and who is the, who's the best person at that. So maybe you're, you're into cooking, and so think about the best chef that you know, or maybe you're into painting. Think about the best artist or the best musician, the best sports star, the best, I don't know, TikTok dancer. Is that something that kids are into these days, whatever they do? Um, I don't even know what TikTok is, but, but think about whatever that is that, you, that you're into. And imagine that person who you really look up to is this amazing person who can do these amazing things, imagine they called you up this afternoon and said, hey, I want you to come be part of what I'm doing today. So imagine that the chef, you know, Jose Garces called you up and said, tonight I'm making dinner and I'd love to have you in the kitchen with me. Uh, imagine that Serena Williams said, hey, I'm playing tennis down at FDR Park and I'd love to hit a few balls with you if you're available. Imagine that, and this is impossible, but imagine that my, one of my heroes, B.B. King, said, hey, let's jam together today. Uh, how sweet would that be? Or uh, Olivia Rodrigo said, let's sing. She's, she's someone the kids like, right? I was trying to find a, a kid singer. I don't even know what kids listen to these days, but um, definitely not as good as B.B. King. But anyways, just imagine this person called you up and invited you to come join them in doing their thing. If that person called you, I think you would clear your calendar. I don't think you'd say, sorry, I have other commitments. I don't think you'd say, sorry, I really want to binge watch this Netflix show right now. You know, sorry, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just too tired. Um, sorry, I, I have this work commitment that I want to go to. No, if that call came in and, and you were asked the question, hey, do you want to come join me? Are, are you in? I think we'd all say, yeah, I'm all in. And we'd figure out the details later. Today, friends, we're going to see something that God is doing. We're going to see what God is up to in this world. God, the most amazing being in all of existence. We're going to see what he's about, and we're going to see that not only is he giving us an invitation to watch what he is doing, he's giving us an invitation to join him in what he is doing. The book of 1 Peter is all about how we as Christians, are exiles on earth. This place is not our true home. We were made for another. We're only passing through here, but we are not meant to pass by here. No, there are great and glorious things that God is doing right now, right here, and in his amazing love and grace, he wants to invite us to join him in his work. And so this morning's sermon, joining God's work, joining God's work, and my prayer is that by the end of today, we'd have a vision and a heart to be all in. Let's read together in God's holy word, 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4, reading through verse 10. As you come to him, 
a living stone, rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Would you bow your heads with me now in a word of prayer that God bless the preaching of his word. Lord God, we thank you that you inspired Peter to write these words so many years ago to these churches, but you preserve them for your church today. You preserve them for us today. You inspired him in such a way that to hear these words is to hear your very voice. And so God, I pray you would, we would hear you speaking to us today. Lord, you know what we need to hear. You know how we need your voice to speak into our lives. And so, God, I pray that each person here would be met where they are. They would be met as they are. They would feel your love. And then by your love would not be left as they are. But that we all, God, would be built up more into the great and glorious purposes you have for us in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray you be with us through the preaching of your word that we might be edified, that your name might be glorified, and that the enemy of our souls would be horrified. We praise in the name of Christ. Amen. So here's what this text is telling us. It is telling us that God is building a spiritual house through his people. God is building a spiritual house through his people. And that might not seem like much to you right now, but that my prayer has been that by the end of our time today, our response would be, wow, I'm all in. And so in order to see what this means, let's look at three things this text draws our attention to. The first is the foundation of God's house. The second will be the materials of God's house. The third will be the purpose of God's house. And so first, the foundation of God's house. This passage starts by directing us immediately to Jesus. Verse 4 says, as you come to him. This is describing conversion to Christianity. Friends, our faith centers on a person. The person of Jesus Christ. When people who are not Christians have questions about the Christian faith, 
or when people who are quest- uh, Christians can have various questions that they're trying to process about their faith. The main thing I want to ask them is, well, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus? Put everything else aside for a moment. Who is Jesus? And as I ask that question, sometimes the answer that can come back can be like, well, I feel like Jesus is like, and they begin to describe Jesus that is very curiously, very much like how they are like. Um, But the reality is, Jesus is a real person. We come to him. He is a real being who really exists. And so what we feel about him don't dictate what is true about him. Our feelings don't really actually matter that whole much. You, you, you can look at me and you can feel like, just by looking at me, I'm someone who appreciates coleslaw. You just kind of get that vibe from me. I think Jeff really likes coleslaw. But let me tell you, at the church picnic, if there is a pile of coleslaw there, I will not be partaking. Because that is one of the feuds that makes me gag more than almost anything else. I mean, it is just repugnant to me in every possible way. I'm a real person. And so you can feel whatever you want to about me, but your feelings don't actually dictate what I feel and what I know about myself. Jesus is a real historical person. And Christianity is not dictated upon what we feel based on our preferences about him. It's all about what he has said about himself. The truth of Christianity rises or falls on the truth about who Jesus is. Our faith is about coming to him and believing in who he says he is. And not just believing facts about him, but knowing him. We come to him. We, we know him as a person. Our faith is not a mere ideology, but fundamentally it's about a relationship with Jesus. Peter calls him a stone. We'll get to that in a moment. But notice that Peter says he is a living stone. Over and over again throughout this letter, Peter's been drawing our attention to this phrase again and again. So in chapter 1, verse 3, Peter says Jesus is what? Our living hope. Chapter 1, verse 23, he says Jesus is what? The living word of God. Peter keeps making the same point over and over again. When we're talking about Jesus, we're talking about someone who's alive. He is living. And Peter is someone who lived with Jesus. He he was with Jesus when Jesus was on earth. He was not only one of Jesus' original 12 disciples, he was part of Jesus' inner circle of the three. Peter fled when Jesus was arrested and taken to be executed. But then after Jesus died, Peter saw his Lord come back to life. The one he thought had failed, he saw rise victoriously from the grave. And so as Peter is talking about Jesus being alive, he's talking about someone who he saw himself come back to life. And when Peter saw that, that changed everything for Peter. Friends, it's meant to change everything for us. The living God, Jesus Christ, is a person that we can know. And Christianity rises or falls with him. Our, Our faith is about coming to him and believing in who he is and having a relationship with him as our Savior. He is the living stone. And not just any stone, but notice verses 6 and 7 say that he is the corner stone. In ancient Israel, homes were built out of stone. And the most important stone was the cornerstone. The cornerstone was the first stone that would get laid. 
And it would be a reference point that would then give shape to the rest of the house. It would be the foundation upon which the rest of the structure would be built. And so the cornerstone would have to be as near perfect as possible. It would have to have all the right angles. It couldn't be crooked in any way because then the house would be all out of shape. It had to be smooth. It had to be sturdy. And so builders would examine various stones. They would reject those that were less worthy and go until they found the one. And the more important the building, the more important the cornerstone that was the foundation of that building. Friends, God is building something. And what he is building is so important that the only cornerstone fit to be its foundation is God himself. Jesus, the God-man, fully God and fully man, he is the cornerstone of this house that God is building. And what Peter is drawing our attention to is that this is not something new, but it's actually the fulfillment of something that's very, very old. Did you notice that verses 6, 7, and 8 all are set off in quotation marks? They are citations from the Old Testament, books of the Bible written before Jesus came. Let me just encourage you, when you read citations like this, they are meant to be hyperlinks that we should click on for more information. And so verse 6, if you were to click on that, you would see it as a reference to Isaiah chapter 26, verse 6. The, the context is that the prophet Isaiah is writing to the Jewish people during their exile in Babylon. They're away from their true home, and when that happens, when you're away from your true home, you can begin to get discouraged that you'll never get home. And so God sent a prophecy to Isaiah to encourage his people that he was building a new home for them, a new home for them in Zion. Zion is the city of God. God was promising them they're going to make it out of their exile and they're going to come to dwell with God in God's city and in God's house. And God is building his house with the perfect cornerstone. God has chosen this cornerstone. This cornerstone is, is precious to God. And forever who anyone who believes in this cornerstone, oh, other foundations might fail you. Other points of reference might lead you in the wrong direction. But anyone who bases their life off of this cornerstone will never be put to shame. That is what God is promising. That is what Peter is telling us that Jesus fulfills. Verse 7 is a quotation from Psalm 118, verse 22. What's interesting to note about this psalm is this psalm was one of the psalms that the priest would sing on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And so on the day when they would slaughter animal sacrifices to pay for the people's sins. This is what Psalm 118 says. We actually read a portion of this in our call to worship. The Lord is God, and he has made light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Right? They're singing about making sacrifices. They, they would sing this as they were making the sacrifices on the day of atonement. But they would sing the whole, the whole psalm. And so what this is drawing attention to is a life of sin requires a life of return. And so the day of atonement, thousands of sheeps and goats and bulls would be killed. The temple was a really a, a butcher shop with blood and guts everywhere. And the priests were singing as they were slicing Psalm 118. Which goes on to say this in verses 21 and 22. I thank you that you've answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
See, what Peter's telling us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that that song, written hundreds of years before, sung by the priests on the Day of Atonement, was a song that was a prelude about Jesus. The, the Day of Atonement had to be repeated year after year. The, the priests would just keep singing this song, but no animal could, could really pay for the life of a, per, of a person. And so the, 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 the blood of bulls and goats was never sufficient. So they had to repeat it year after year after year. But now Jesus has come. And in his eternal being, he is able to pay for our sins for all eternity. And so in Jesus, we now have full and final salvation. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice who atones for our sins once and for all with his divine blood. Verse 8. This quotation from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 6, which talks about how God's salvation will be a, an offense to many people. We, we live in a culture that tells us that we have to affirm everything about everyone because that's what love is. But Jesus said love is him being the savior of sinners. And so Jesus defines love not first with affirmation but with confrontation. He confronts us with the reality that we are sinners. We might sin in different ways, but God says to all of us, you're in the wrong. Like Jesus did not come to affirm us and tell us that we're already doing a great job. That everything we feel and everything we think about ourselves, that's good. You just be good you. That was the message. Why on earth did he have to even have to come? No, Jesus did not come to affirm us. He came to die in our place. He came to, to give his life for our sin because our sin is so serious against God that it requires the judgment of God. Jesus is confrontational. Being called a sinner, friends, let's be clear, that is offensive. Unless it is true. If it's true, if it's true that we're sinners, then friends, being called that is not an offensive derogatory term. But it's the sweetest news that we can hear because Jesus came to be the Savior, not of good people. He came to be the Savior of sinners. If it's true that Jesus is the Savior of sinners, then we are not to be offended by that, but then we should be grateful for that. We should be grateful that bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood and sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. That's the song of people who know they're sinners and who know they have a Savior. What Peter's showing us here, friends, is that Jesus, he's a rock that gets in everyone's way. There's no avoiding him. Jesus will be either someone who saves you or someone who offends you, but he will be someone to you. As I was preparing this sermon, I just felt led to ask this question at this point. I wonder if there are people here who, in a genuine desire to share with others about Jesus, you are removing the offense of Jesus. Maybe you've been redefining sin as something less than it is. You try to talk a lot about God's love, but you avoid the subject of God's justice. Listen, friends, we need to be humble and gentle, and we need to work hard to not be offensive people. But if we're trying to soften the message of Christ and take his offense out, then we're actually removing from people the very truth they need to hear in order to come to faith in him. The only way to come to a Savior and realize his love 
is to realize you're a sinner who deserves his judgment. If we take out the seriousness of sin, we gut the power of the cross. Jesus is a living stone. He's alive and he's a stone. You know what that means? Well, you can't really reshape a stone, can you? We, we are not meant to change anything about Jesus and his message. He is who he is. The only question is, are we going to trip over the stone and be offended, or are we going to rest our whole lives? Are we going to rest our eternal souls? Are we going to rest our salvation on this stone and be comforted? All of Christianity comes back to Jesus. He is the foundation of this house that God is building. But, but what is this house? Well, the meaning of God's house comes into view as we see the materials God is using to build his house. Let's look at point number two, the materials of God's house. Verse 5 tells us, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. The materials of God's house is us. Jesus is the cornerstone, but we are the other stones. This is one of the crazy things about Christianity. One of the things that actually makes us unique from, from every other kind of belief system or religion, if you want to call it that. When we put our faith in Jesus, when we come to him, we become like him. There's this mystical union that takes place between us and Jesus as we place our faith in him. I love how theologian Peter Davids comments on it this way. He says, the Christians are not naturally living stones but become such as they are joined to Christ. And Christianity is, is the only religion in the world where the life of the one you worship becomes your own life. No, no one says they are in Muhammad. No one says they are in Allah. No one says they are in Buddha. No one says they are in Confucius. But the Christian is in Christ. The word Christian actually means little Christ. And so Christian, you need to know today that the most fundamental thing about you is not who you are in worldly terms. It is not your job. It's not your vocation. It's not your skill set. It's not your various relational roles. No, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, if you become united to him, then who you most fundamentally are is who you are in him. We are the materials of this spiritual house that God is building. This spiritual house is another Old Testament Reference. In the Old Testament, what was God's house? It was the temple in Jerusalem. When Israel had finished building the temple, we read about this in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, fire comes down from heaven, and God's glory fills the Holy of Holies, the, the innermost part of the temple. And so the temple was the place where God's presence dwelt, where his glory manifested itself, where heaven touched earth. It was God's spiritual house. But what Peter is saying here, incredibly, is that the place where God's glory now dwells is no longer a physical temple. But we ourselves are the temple of God. Theologian R.J. McKelvey says it this way, God no longer dwells with his people in a sanctuary which they make for him. He dwells in them and they are his temple. We are the temple of the living God. We, we are the holy habitation. The place where God's presence now touches earth and manifests itself in its radiant glory is us. 
And when I'm saying this, I'm purposely using plural terms because this is not we or us as isolated individuals, but we as we come together as the church. One stone by itself is what? It's just a stone. It's as stones come together that they can be built into a house. Paul says it this way in his letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. He says, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. God's household is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets because they are the ones who testify to the truth about Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the foundation. He is the reference point. He is the fundamental bedrock truth and person. But the whole structure, as we build our lives together, as we come together as a church, what are we doing? We are built being built together into the temple of the Lord. Theologian Peter W. Comfort comments on Ephesians 2 by saying this, Paul pictured each local church as providing God with a spiritual habitation in that locality and as growing together with other churches into one holy universal sanctuary for the Lord's indwelling. Friends, it might not look like much when we get together. It might always feel like that big a deal to be part of this community. The reality is in our culture, there's all kinds of different communities you can be part of. There's lots of different things that bring people together. Lots of social causes that you can be a part of. But as we come together, as the church comes together as the church in, in this community, friends, there are cosmic realities at play. The church is the place where God's spirit now dwells and heaven touches earth. No wonder that the great preacher Charles Spurgeon often called the church the dearest place on earth. It is. It is. Because this is where God is. We together are the house of God. And in case we aren't yet getting this massive cosmic reality, Paul goes on to describe the church in further detail in verse 9. Here's what he says about who the church is. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. What we need to understand is that these are not random metaphors that Peter's using. No, the pairings of these different complementary concepts was written about previously in Exodus chapter 19. In Exodus chapter 19, God had rescued the people of Israel from their slavery to the Egyptians. This is what God says to them in verses 5 through 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Notice, treasure possession, kingdom of priests, holy nation. Peter's alluding very clearly to Exodus 19 here, and he's applying these terms now to the church. And he's doing this to make the theological point that there's only ever been one people of God. Israel was not meant to be 
seen as an ethnic designation, but were those who had been spiritually redeemed by God. God's people have always been the redeemed people. And God calls these redeemed people, he calls them a royal priesthood. Priests were those who served God in the temple. They had a unique access. Only a priest could go into the holy of holies. But now, we in Christ Jesus, we all get equal access. We're all welcomed into the throne room of God. We all, we all get access as priests to the throne room of God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. We are a royal priesthood and we are a holy nation. We looked at holiness two weeks ago in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. It's the idea of being set apart. We are to be set apart people. We are to be people who are set apart from this world because we now follow God's ways. We don't take our cues from the culture. We, 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 we follow what the Lord says. We aren't perfect people. We mess up and make mistakes. We sin. We're not claiming perfection, but we are saying this is our direction. We want to live holy lives, set apart according to God. People should see us, friends, as living to the beat of a different drum. They should. And let me just say this. I think it's actually something that progressive Christians and evangelical Christians can get wrong. We've got a country right now, let's just be honest, that is split between right and left. And too many people who claim the name of Christ are taking sides. But friends, let's be clear. Jesus did not come to take sides. He came to take over and redefine everything. And so as his followers, we shouldn't take our cues from any party platform or any social agenda, but instead we are to be holy people who follow his set-apart ways, which, let's be clear, Jesus does not fit into either box that the right or the left tries to put him in. We are to be a holy people, a people for God's own possession. You know, people pay crazy money for celebrities' possessions. John Lennon's broken toilet sold for $15,000. Justin, Justin, someone said amen, that's hilarious. Um, Justin Timberlake was eating in a restaurant, and after he left, there were some French, French toast crumbs. I guess he doesn't like the crust. And so he had left them behind. A, the restaurant owner gathered them and sold them on eBay for $2,700. Those things are not valuable in and of themselves. They're valuable because the people who had them have value. Friends, those people are all dead or gone and die. Sorry, Justin Timberlake isn't dead yet. I won't speak that into existence. He's dead to me. What can I say? No, I'm totally joking. I don't think I've ever heard Justin Timberlake's song in my life. But, but those people are, are either dead or going to die. They have no really eternal value. Can you imagine how valuable God is? God is the eternal being who always has been and always will be. He is the greatest being in all of existence. That's kind of what it means to, to be God. He has inestimable, eternal, infinite value. And so can you imagine how valuable it is that we get to belong to him? Our value comes from God's value. We are people of his possession. That's how precious you are. We are holy people. We are people for God's own possession. We are a royal priesthood. But notice here that 
Peter adds a different descriptor in verse 9 that we don't read about in Exodus 19. So in Exodus 19, it talks about God being God's people. It talks about being a priesthood. It talks about being a holy nation. Peter adds in here, you are a chosen race. Race is about your bloodline. It's about the people you come from. Peter's telling us here, friends, that in Jesus, we have a common bloodline. His blood is the blood that makes us who we are. I don't know how you might identify yourself ethnically or racially. Praise God for how he made you. The the diversity of what he has made is meant to be beautiful. But let's be very clear. Our most fundamental identity is who we are in Christ. That is what brings us together. It is his blood that is the most important blood to us. I am blood-related in a closer way to my brother in Christ in Africa than I am if I had a brother from the same mother who didn't know Jesus. Friends, we are blood-related family. We are a chosen race. His blood is the blood that makes us who we are. And so this, friends, is what God is building. He is building together people where he can display his glory by bringing us together in the blood of Christ with access as priests, distinct as his holy people, valuable as his possession. This is who we are together. See, in our Western culture, we're so wired to think of our identity in terms of ourselves. If I were to ask you, who are you, you would probably tell me a lot of stuff about yourself, right? What this is telling you is that when we ask the question, who are you, what we should start talking about is not just ourselves. What we should start talking about is the church that we're part of. We, we have a communal identity. We have a communal identity. The church is not just a place we attend. It's an identity that we have as we join our lives with other Christians. Theologian Karen Job says it this way in her excellent commentary on 1 Peter. The imagery implies that the significance and purpose of the individual Christian cannot be realized apart from community with other believers. Friends, here's the bottom line. We cannot be who God has made us to be by ourselves. We can't be who God has made us to be by ourselves. We need to be joined together in community as God's church. I love how Charles Spurgeon says it. He writes about in a sermon on the church. He says, I know there are some who say, well, I've given myself to the Lord but I don't intend to give myself to any church. I say, now why not? And the answer, because I can be just as good a Christian without it. I say, are you quite clear about that? You can be as good a Christian by disobedience to your Lord's commands as by being obedient? There's a brick. What is the brick made for? It's made to build a house. It is of no use for the brick to tell you that it is just as good a brick while it's kicking them out on the ground by itself as it would be as part of a house. Actually, it's a good-for-nothing brick. Friends, if you placed your faith in Jesus, then you are a living stone. And by yourself, that doesn't mean a whole lot. By ourselves, we're just good-for-nothing bricks. We come together, though. And as we join our lives together as God's church, as we take an active part in the community of the people that God has brought together by his blood, friends, there is now, through our shared lives, grand cosmic 
realities at play in this structure that God is now building. And why is God doing this? Why is God making us into a, a temple together? Why not just let us go out into the world living our scattered, individual, separate lives? Let's look at the final point here, the purpose of God's house. There are two purpose words used in this passage that show us what we are to be doing together as God's house. The first comes in verse 5. It says, you're being built up as a spiritual house. Why? To be a holy priesthood. Why to be a holy priesthood? To offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Part of why we come together is to offer sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. Now, we're not slaughtering any animals in here. Uh, sacrifice is the idea of offering something to God that is, that is pleasing to him. The Bible actually talks about several ways that we offer sacrifices to God. The first and more, most important is you. You yourself are to be meant to be a sacrifice to God. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's part of why God cares about what we do with our bodies. Who we are is to be people in our whole selves, in our physical selves, spiritually and physically, united together as one being. We are to present ourselves as living sacrifices to God. We're to say, here's my life, Lord. I'm not going to define me. I'm going to let you define me. Here's, here's my hands. Here's my feet. Here's my mouth. Here's my intellect. Here's my, here's my abilities. Here's all who I am. It is all for you. That's a sacrifice of praise to God. Another sacrifice of worship to God is giving God praise. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 15 says, Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. We come together as God's church and we sing God's praise. Regardless of how we feel about how our lives are going. In the good days and the bad days, we come together to say, God is our ultimate joy. And so whether I've been rejoicing this week or whether I've been in sorrow this week, I come together to say, my week does not determine the state of my being. Who you are, God, determines the state of my being. And so even a week where I've been in tears, I come in and I sing the song, there is joy in the house of the Lord today. And Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 says, as we praise God together, there's a whole lot more happening than just you singing by yourself in the shower. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 says, as we praise God together as his church, the presence of Christ dwells in us richly. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16, tells us to offer God the sacrifices of doing good works. As we do good to others in the name of Jesus, we are offering sacrifices to God. This is why we do things like our upcoming South Philly Kids Festival. Like we want to do good things in the name of Jesus as a sacrifice of worship. In Philippians chapter 4, 18, Paul commends the church for how they're giving financially. And he says their financial giving is a sacrifice of praise to God. In 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to go on to read soon how Peter talks about how we greet one another. How we are hospitable to each other. How we open our homes and open our hearts, especially to those on the margins. He, he's going to call that a sacrifice of praise of worship to God. See, God is building us together as a people who live as pleasing sacrifices to him. He's making us his house so that we can exalt Jesus, 
by using our lives together to say Jesus is worth everything. He is worthy of my praise. He is worthy of my time. He is worthy of my finances. He is worthy of my life. We come together to worship, to declare his great value, to offer spiritual sacrifices pleasing to him. It's part of why the church exists. We exist to worship. And verse 9 tells us another reason that we exist. You are a holy, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That word proclaim comes from the Greek word which means to share the good news. The good news is that we are those who used to live in darkness, but now we've been called into God's marvelous light. The Bible frequently describes people who do not believe in Jesus as those who live in darkness. In the dark, you are not seeing things clearly. You do not know what is fully going on. You can't even see yourself clearly. And if you try to walk around in the dark, you usually bump into things and you'll end up hurting yourself. But Jesus said he is the light of the world, John chapter 8. He, he came to turn the lights on. He came to show us who God is. He came to show us who we are. He came to show us our sin. He came to show us our, himself as our Savior. And all this comes from God's mercy. Once we were those who lived in darkness and not received God's mercy, but now we're those who live in the light. Why? Because of God's mercy. Left unto ourselves, we deserve to be those who are stumbling around in darkness. But because of God's great mercy, He has not left us to ourselves. Praise the Lord. If you're here today and you put your faith in Jesus, or if you're here today and you would put your faith in Jesus for the very first time, you need to know that that has happened because God has been merciful to you. And as we experience the mercy given to us in the light of the gospel, not only are we to praise God for it, we're also to proclaim it to others. You know, one Christian trying to witness can't always get a whole lot done. You can have some great conversations. You certainly can do that. Obviously, personal witnessing is a huge call to Christians. But one Christian can be written off as an anomaly. One Christian can just be a weirdo. When I used to work in sales, I had a friend who I was regularly uh, witnessing to, and he thought I was just nuts, right? Now, I am kind of nuts, but that's another story. He, he, he thought, though, I was just, I was, uh, you just you're, just kinda, you're abnormally nice. You're, you're, just a, you're just a nice, good person. I would try to tell him, no, 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 I'm, I'm a sinner who needs a Savior. Let me, let me explain that to you once again. But he just wrote me off as an anomaly until I brought him to a church event. Then he met a whole bunch of other Christians and he's like, oh, his comment was, oh, there's a lot of other Jeffs here. He saw I wasn't anything special. He saw this is just how Christians are. And that played a significant part in his coming to Christ. In Al Noble's excellent book, Analog Church, which is about why we need to be physically present with each other, that's what being a church is. The words online church are an oxymoron. Um, Al Noble says this, the greatest witness to the world will always be the body of Christ gathered in worship. And so you know what this means? This means that everyone here has a part to play in this gathering. You, you always have a part to play. 
Even the Sundays when you aren't necessarily serving the specific volunteer role, you still have a part to play. As we worship through singing, as we worship through praying, as we worship through giving, as we worship through listening to God's word, as we worship through celebrating the Lord's Supper, as we worship through greeting one another, as we do those things, friends, not only are we worshiping God, we are witnessing to the world. Our participation is part of our testimony. We come together as God's house to praise him and to proclaim him, to savor his goodness and to share his gospel, to exalt Christ and to declare his excellencies to others. And so when you greet someone on a Sunday morning that you don't know, when you encourage a Christian brother or sister, when you give, when you listen, when you pray, when, when, when you join a small group, when you take part of a Bible study, when you volunteer at a church outreach, when you just spend time together at the parks or in the coffee shops or doing house projects with one another. Friends, all those things that build our relationships together, all those things that build us together as the community of the church, all those things are an outworking of the cosmic reality that God is building his church and he wants to use us to proclaim him to the world. The church is meant to be a radical subculture that shows this world what true fellowship and friendship is meant to look like. And as I look at our world that is so divided right now in our country, friends, this is our moment. This is our moment. Our moment is not to take sides and to play into those partisan politics. Our moment is to come together and to link arms in love and say, I don't care if you voted Democrat or Republican. If you place your faith in Christ, the reality is we're not part of a democracy. We're part of a monarchy with Jesus as our king, and that's the most important thing. And so Republican and Democrat, we come together not defined by our parties, but defined by Jesus, and we show this world that there's a different way to live. We come together as a church, friends, to praise him and to proclaim him to praise him and to proclaim him. God is building a spiritual house, a place where his glory will be made manifest in this world, and he's inviting us to join him in this great work. And so Christ Church, are you all in? God this morning is inviting us to give up our small, pathetic dreams that are just about us. And he's calling us to build something that will outlast us, build something that is bigger than us. He's calling us to give our lives to building his church for the glory of his name and for our witness to the world. Let's be all in. Let's be all in for the sake of Christ. Let's bow our heads in prayer.